Hello, I'm Sandy Magnan, host for this podcast. Welcome to the second episode in the series, 50 Years Pursuing Population Health with David Kindig, The Unfinished Journey. And again, I'm here with a thought leader in population health, Dave Kindig. Dave, thanks so much for sharing in the first episode titled, Once Upon a Time, How Your Thinking in Population Health Started. And I love that quote that you gave from the column, Unconventional Wisdom. You were just ahead of your time thinking about how to produce health, not just healthcare in our nation. This episode, the second one, the story behind the book, and we're referencing your book, Purchasing Population Health, Paying for Results. Now, in the previous episode, you discussed how the milieu of managed care, capitation, and bundling stimulated your thinking about paying for health outcomes rather than only health care services. But honestly, Dave, I have to say it really was limited to health care realm. So how did the expansion to the multiple determinants take place? What was that like? Tell us more about it. Well, thanks, Sandy. Um, last time I did mention some of my roots, earlier roots in Oyoad neighborhood, neighborhood Health Center in the South Bronx and that sort of breadth of experience. But at this time, a little later on, absolutely seminal was my connection to the Canadian Population Health Program uh, in the mid-1980s and being welcomed to attend uh, several of their meetings. And around 1990, I read and sought the seminal uh, Bob Evans and Greg Stoddard paper from drafts that they were working on in their working group um, that first appeared um, in an article in 1990, Producing Health, Consuming Healthcare. And that was actually later reprinted in their important 1994 book, Why Are Some People Healthy and Others Not? The Determinants of Health of Populations. I was intellectually blown away by the evolution of their models. And we have a graphic in the show notes that go beyond the medical model with illness as the outcome and medical care as the determinant of that outcome to broader outcomes like health and function and even well-being and to the breadth of determinants. The only italicized sentence in that whole paper is this sentence, a society that spends so much on healthcare that it cannot or will not spend adequately on other health enhancing activities may actually be reducing the health of its population. And that remains a, a guidepost for me today. The following chapters in that book flow from how, if it's not primarily medical care and not primarily genetics, the significant importance of the social determinants. And I think for us in the West, or at least in North America, that's the first time that this really came on to the scene. Um, it was my introduction to the British um, Michael Marmot Whitehall studies that showed the social gradient, the fact that outcomes, it's not just the rich 
have good outcomes and the poor have low outcomes, but the continuous range of outcomes along the education or income gradient. And of course, as we all know, the social gradient is one of the keystone uh, findings um, in, in our field. And also they deal with the chapters on stress in immunobiology, showing how the social determinants can get under the skin to cause disease. I mean, still an issue for us to grapple with. It's not like smoking or, or appendicitis. I remembered absolutely being awe, uh, me as a pediatrician, me with a PhD in molecular biology, having to learn this biology from Canadian economists. <laughs> I realized at the time I knew very little about this and I wrote a sabbatical proposal here at University of Wisconsin. The plan focused on six months in York, England for outcomes measurement. They were the home of health related quality of life metrics and six months at the University of British Columbia in, in Vancouver with Evans and Stoddart on the multiple determinants um, issue that they focused on so much. So Dave, I have to say that italicized sentence in that 1990 paper about where society spends so much on healthcare that it cannot or will not spend on other health enhancing activities. Boy, you know, 30 years later, when we look at how much our healthcare costs have gone up and how we don't have health outcomes that show the fruit for all that investment. That's really striking. But I digress. Let's go back. So now you've gone from- But it's Sandy, but it's not a digression. I think it is. Even in, in as you point out, 2022, it's a 30-year-old sentence that really repeat, bears a lot of repeating. And so I'm happy that we're doing it here. Yeah. OK, thanks. Um, so now you've gone from Canada to York, England. Um, so tell me more about what you were learning in England at that time. Yeah, um, so if anybody thinks a sabbatical is fun in games, um, mine, was, <laughs> mine wasn't. It's the hardest work I did in my life as a retreaded sort of pediatrician um, hospital administrator. I actually got intellectually paralyzed that six months. Um, I, I studied primarily with Alan Williams. Europe's leading health economist. I walked in the door and he instantly required me to take a six weeks econ boot camp for their master's students because he said otherwise I'd be dangerous. Um, I had the immediate realization that European health economists focus on resource distribution rather than just supply and demand. It was a real shock that most economists were ethicists and those issues dominated their thinking. The measurement focus there was on health related quality of light measures. They had developed the Euroqual, has six domains that produce 250 health states of which several are worse than death and, and remains a really important way to think about measuring non-mortality outcomes. I came after all that, I came home to the Midwest for Christmas. My dad asked me how the book was coming and I said, there won't be one. I know less than when I started. 
That was not a very good uh, Christmas uh, Christmas present there, was it? Um, well, subsequently you went to Vancouver. What happened there to spur on the book and to be able to show your dad that there really was going to be a book? Yeah, well, yeah, we drove out to Vancouver. It's a great place. I mean, it was a wonderful six months um, living there. It was a little less intellectually challenging or paralyzing than in York because most of those ideas had already been spelled out in their book. Um, so there wasn't that much new to learn. I, I was a little surprised that Bob Evans, who's a friend and colleague and a respected economist, was less interested in outcomes. He had really, and their group, and in that book and paper, had defined pop health only as a field of study of the determinants of health, which is the title of their book, and not with an outcome focus. Um, he said that it would be too complicated to agree on what the outcomes could be. And so they decided to pass on that one. Well, that wasn't possible for me because of, well, just what I really believe about outcomes. And given the previous six months intense outcomes measurement immersion in York. So, so I continued to pursue both of those. We were living in a basement apartment um, outside of York, um, every, uh, outside of Vancouver. Um, every morning I took the bus to campus, but before I did that, I logged in through dial-up connection <laughs> back into my University of Wisconsin email. Um, one morning I stayed on the computer and wrote a paragraph about the social determinants. This was maybe a month after I'd been there. I remember being shocked with the realization that could this possibly be chapter five of the outcome I'd really put in my sabbatical proposal? I remember freezing and shutting the computer down and turning it off. I couldn't <laughs> deal with it. The next morning after emails, I opened it up again and several paragraphs flowed. I said, oh my God, it is the beginning of chapter five. And after that, this intellectual dam broke. Um, and within six weeks, I had a working draft of all the chapters. I have always wondered ever since what neurochemistry was at play in sort of unleashing all that stored up um, confusion and creativity. And uh, that did result in the book that you mentioned, um, pursuing Purchasing Population Health, Paying for Results on 1997 uh, University of Michigan Press. For those who are interested, uh, we do have in the show notes on the IAPHS website, the chapter titles of the book. But Dave, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. So which one, was it chapter five that was most challenging? Or which one would you say is most important if your readers, if the readers wanted to go read just one chapter? Right, if they could even find a copy of the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, of course they were all important. And I, uh, but if I had to pick two, um, Chapter six was called, Can Rationing Be Rational? I, for one, like Don Berwick, have never shied away from that term, balancing the determinants of health, which is early thinking on financial incentives 
for health outcomes, which we will cover later in podcast six. And then the other one, chapter six, different populations, different needs, which was my early thinking on fairness and equity, even though I didn't ever use the equity term at that time. We will cover this more fully in podcast seven and eight later. So Dave, were those both in chapter six or was one? No, I get, I gave you two, six and then uh, six and then seven. Seven, okay. All right. So let's do a little summarization and I'll ask you at the end if, uh, if we got them all, Dave. So first one is everything you've done in population health research and advocacy has its origins its roots in the Evans Stoddard 1990 paper. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, all right. Uh, and you can find that reference in the show notes for, for listeners. The second one is population health needs a clear outcome measurement definition. It's not enough to be just a study of the determinants. And this led to the initial health adjusted life expectancy definition. That's a mouthful. And we'll discuss that more in an upcoming podcast. This, you wanna say something, Dave? Well, I was gonna say, yes, we will come back to it. It is still a challenge for our field. Exactly what is it that we're trying to produce? You can't manage what you can't measure. All right. The third one is the fundamental assertion of your book is that population health improvement needs appropriate financial incentives designed for this outcome. I don't know if we talked explicitly about that, but certainly that's on the jacket uh, of your book. And then last, and we'll come back to this more, is that there needs to be an investment balancing function across determinants. That's critical. One that encompasses fairness. And we'll talk more about that in upcoming podcast. Anything else to add, Dave? Um, no, not right now. We will come back to more takeaways as we go along, but uh, that sums up this one. Yeah. All right. I want to thank you for telling us the story behind the book. And I bet your father was very proud and probably relieved when that book was published. And we also heard the roots of the answer to our third episode, What is Population Health? Again, listeners, if you want additional information, uh, all the titles of the podcast, as well as references and key takeaways, go to the show notes on the IAPHS website. And please join us next time as we continue in our third of the series, Exploring 50 Years Pursuing Population Health with David Kendig, The Unfinished.